chapter, but we broke it down. If you look at your outline before we get into the introduction, right? So I titled this The Beginning of the End. Because again, there's this shift now that John slows everything down from the first 11 chapters are like three years worth of John or Jesus' ministry. And this, the rest of the book is, real, is all this last week. It's all the Holy Week. So from Palm Sunday, which we'll get into today, all the way till the Resurrection Sunday. Right? So it's all pretty much one week or you know, maybe eight days, depending on how you look at it. So you know, John slows everything down, but he's zooming in because this is the most important part. And so this is the beginning of the end. So first... I want to take and recognize Chuck and Bob because all the work they've done, we are now in the beginning of the end of all the work that's been going on. And they, these two guys have done a huge amount of work with everything. So I appreciate it. We thank you right? because it enables us to do ministry work, outreach, and everything else. And so you know, I know there's little, little odds and ends here and there, but everything, most of the bulk of the stuff is pretty much done. You know? And I'm waiting for the day we can have bacon before service. Um, no pressure. I'm just saying. <laughs> right? It could be as early as next week. That makes me very happy, right? <clears throat> I like bacon. <laughs> but, you know, as we're reading, you know, if you read a book or you watch movies, right, there's a point where you know that everything's coming and going to be over pretty soon. Or sometimes the movie's trick you, right? If you watch a movie and all of a sudden you're like, well, I think it's going to be over. Then all of a sudden, wait, it's not over. No, it's not over. And you know, there's a few movies like that. There's like four endings almost. There's all these hills. But, you know, this is the end of Jesus' ministry. And so he is the lamb who's come to be slain for us. And so this is important that if you look at your outline... You know, I have it broken down into the different sections. So this is all about the Lamb's anointing. The Lamb's arrival because He's coming into the city now. So He's coming into to the Passover week. The Lamb's awareness of what's going on. And then the Lamb's assignment is, is John gives uh, Jesus in His own words. You know, John records them for us that He is retelling the Gospel, the good news of what He's come to do and what He still has to do yet. And what that means for us. Right. What does that mean for us? What does it mean that Jesus has come here? What do we do with that information? Because it's not just something He just comes down and gives us and oh, we're all, we're all saved. Right? We still have a part to play with our will to do these things. We have to still decide. Right? Now, however that works out, right? we know that, but we have God's sovereignty in saving and sacrificing Himself for us, but we also have to make a choice. And God, Jesus gives us the implications of what that happens if we do or don't. Right? So that's important. So that's where we're going today. And like I said, it's, it's kind of a long chapter, but we're going to stick to the main parts of everything that we see here because that is Jesus and what He does and what He's getting ready to do and what it means theologically. That's the most important parts. Like we could easily break down all these things and spend a whole month probably just on this chapter alone with all the different sections that we have here. But it's important that we go through and keep Jesus at the forefront of this. And so, go go ahead and read John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. That kind of sets everything up for the anointing. And as we go through, we'll, we'll cover the rest of the, stuff, the, the, the text. <clears throat> so John tells us, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. Right. So he gives us this call back to chapter 11. And so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. 
Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, and anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And so the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And remember in chapter 11, John had told us that this was Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha, that did this, right? So he kind of links these two chapters together with the, with the siblings. But it's also just kind of a nice way to call back and link everything else because the, the original audience knew, knew these people a little better, possibly, right? They had heard these things before. <clears throat> But then he says in verse 4, Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, right? John gives a little, little statement there, said, Why was this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of it, whatever was put in it. So in verse 7, Jesus answered and said, Leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. And moving to nine, it kind of shifts scene a little bit. It says, Then a large crowd of the Jews learned that he was there. And they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus also. And remember, they had already decided to kill Jesus at the end of the chapter 11. Because he was the reason of the many Jews that were des deserting them. And believing in Jesus. Right? So the raising of Lazarus was like that one sign that said, Oh, he's the guy. We need to follow him because this guy was dead yesterday, a few days ago. And now he brought him back to life, right? And so we see this. And this kind of sets the scene for everything else that's going to happen. And so here's the main idea for this. Is that chapter 12 begins the preparation for the Lamb's sacrifice for the final Passover. It is the beginning of the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, but it's also the beginning of the new story. Because without Jesus coming and dying and sacrificing us, we don't have the rest of the story. He's just, unless he's just hanging out with us. You know, so it's important that we see that, that this is the beginning of the, this is for the, sacri the sacrifice for the Passover and also for the Jews because, you know, this is the week of Passover, so the Jews are getting all their lambs ready for their, all of their Passover meals, so all through the city, they're bringing in lambs and everything else to actually eat. Right? And so that's kind of what's going on. And so here, the sacrifice for the Passover, and so this is really, you know, he is the lamb to take away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist says. And so all these things work in conjunction together. And so this is some, a lot more theology because this is, chapter 12 sort of works like chapter 1 as well, where it sets up the rest of the story, right? the rest of the book. And so this event here that we just read, or the rest we're going to read, happens, or at least the, the anointing part happens in all four Gospels, right? So all four Gospels put that in there, and, and so it's an important part of the story. So if it's in all four Gospels, it's a big deal, right? And so each writer, it, it may be different, they're giving us different aspects of it, but they all say that this, this is an important piece to the whole puzzle, right? So it's all in there. And so again, as a reminder, they're shifting. He, John is shifting gears, and so we slow way down to what's going on. And so the scene that we have here is a dinner. It's got Jesus, the apostles, Lazarus, Mary, Martha, and probably some other people. And later we see that the crowd eventually shows up. I guess at whose ever house they are, they, they must have found out where Jesus was at. And like, hey, there he is. And they mobbed him, in a sense. But we don't know whose house it was. You know, it could be Mary and Martha's house, or depending on how they were living, or Lazarus's house. Because um, Mary, Martha was cooking, so I don't know who would let somebody else into their house necessarily. Just like go ahead and cook. So maybe it was her house, and maybe better that it was in there. 
maybe they're in their family or something like that. But we know they're right, just like Mary and Martha, we kind of know how they are. Martha is always working. All right, she, even here, she's working. She's serving dinner. She's serving everybody. And Mary as well is serving the Lord, but she's serving Him. You know, as, as Martha is serving His physical needs, Jesus' physical needs, Mary is taking care of His spiritual needs. Because right? she's going to end up anointing Him and, in, in a sense, prepare His body for burial because they would stick perfumes on it and everything so it wouldn't smell so bad as, as it, you know, body decayed. So Athanasius, right, the, one of the church fathers, he said about this verse, he says, Christ beholds them both with His divine eyes and is cheered and rejoices over the purity of their mode of life and offering to Him of their undefiled service, right? He's not looking down on Martha to say, look, look, this is important. You should be over here hanging out with us. He appreciates the dinner that she's making, and he also appreciates equally Mary's active service with this dinar, this, this nard, because the jar, or this bottle, because we know it's an alabaster jar, one of the Gospels it says it's an alabaster jar, so the jar is pretty expensive to begin with. Then you have this nard oil that's in there, and it's worth 300, 300 denarii. Which so to put that in perspective, it's a it's a laborer's annual salary if they worked six days a week for the whole year with only time off for the holy festival. So you probably get, you know, maybe three three to four weeks off for all the holidays, maybe something like that, right? So, you know, eleven months worth of work, they got three hundred three hundred denarii. So to kind of put it in a little bit of different perspective for us to kinda of understand, the median US salary in twenty twenty one was about nineteen thousand dollars a year. So if, if it's a rough calculation, you know, the average worker gets 19, 20 grand a year here in our country, that would be roughly 300, 300 denarii-ish, right? You can't really, there's different money values, so it's sort of hard, but at least it puts it in perspective a little bit, right? So that's a whole year's worth of wages for these people. And so Judas thinks that this money should be put into the bank account, right? Hey, look, you should sell that, keep all the money, and of course, why? John gives us the information, right? Judas is a thief. He wants to take his 10% or more probably from the bag into his pocket. Right? And there's people that do that, unfortunately. There are people that who, who are in charge of the money and they, they steal things. But John, he's pointing out that he's a treasurer. You know, Judas is the treasurer, but he's also a thief. And he uses all these other colorful terms to describe Judas. He's a devil man. He was a receiver of Satan. He's the son of destruction. Right? And he also calls him the betrayer. So he looked at it. Judas was a betrayer. And we know in a few more chapters that Judas gets tired of all this stuff going on. And he sells out Jesus for, for you know, 30, about 30 pieces of silver. You know, and then he does this. And we know this. Because here's why. This nard, why is it so expensive? So this was a special oil, probably extracted from the root and maybe the spike of this Indian nard plant. Right? So it came all the way from India, most likely. Which is, you know... Pretty good far, far distance from India through Persia or Iran, through Iraq, all the way over to Israel. You know, that's quite a bit of distance. And when you're doing it on camels or walking with it, you know, that takes months probably to travel that distance, right? So it's the cost of it, just like now, we know that everything's going up because, right, gas goes up, the truckers use gas. So guess what? Your price of everything has to go up because you're paying for everybody's gas and everything else. So just the same thing. I have to pay somebody. I have to pay guards. I have to pay the people who extract the plants. I have to do all these things to get this oil to sell to you. And she has this around. You know, and, and 
So here's the interesting thing about this, this oil of why she had it most likely or possibly is that one commentator said this, since Mary's gift was of such economic significance, sociologically Mary had depleted her potential of gaining her husband. This may have been like a dowry. Or it may have been used to sell at some point. If somebody said, I want to marry Mary, then they would have sold that and given the money as a dowry to that, the groom's parents to pay for all these things because that's how it worked back in the day. And so she has, she's basically getting rid of her money that she has set aside for a wedding in order to give it to Jesus. And so this move is not to be understood as merely a nice act of honoring the Lord, but as a tremendous demonstration of commitment to Him. Right? She just gave away a whole year's wages just to stick on His feet. And like that was all the money that I could have eaten a whole lot better probably. Maybe not bought a nice house, whatever it was. And as a result, though, this commentator says, Jesus graciously accepted the act of dedication that many might consider both strange and wasteful. Right? Because our reaction might be the same thing as Judas a little bit. Like, wait a minute. You know, I have some other stuff I could buy from the mall to spread on your feet. You know, that, that doesn't cost $300 a year or whatever, right? I can, go, I can go buy the cheap knockoff stuff and spray it. But, but God is so worthy that He deserves our very best thing. That we should give it to him. And she wasn't even worried about it. She's like, I'm whether I get married or not, I'll figure it out, it'll work out. You know, but this is important. This whole thing, this anointing him is important. And she may not even really figured it out. And so Jesus tells her, He's like, Look, leave her alone. She's kept it for my burial. Because we can always take care of the poor. There'll be more money, there'll be more stuff to take care of them. We can have we can make more food, whatever it is. We can hook them up. But I am only around, literally, and he doesn't come out and say it yet, but really he knows that he's only around for another week. Right, this is it. This is my last week. This is my going away gift. And so he says, she's kept it from my burial. And so Jesus knows he's going to die. He knows that his time has, time has come. And this is what he's been waiting for the whole time. This is why he's been avoiding crowds and God has made it possible so he doesn't get caught or get killed. Because, you know, he's able to slip away from the crowd, different places, kind of get away from people, whatever it is. Because it's not his time, because his time to get arrested comes at the end of the week. And so John has been building this whole book for this last week of Jesus' life. And again, Mary probably didn't know exactly what she was doing or what was going to happen or why she was doing it. But for some reason, she felt compelled to put oil on him, or this perfume. Right, sometimes we do that. We don't know why we do certain things or maybe talk to certain people or have a, somebody, certain people talk to us maybe about something that has been bothering us or maybe you're talking about something that's been bothering them and it seems like it's completely out of the blue. But that's because God is working it out and He's working it out for His glory. And so this, this anointing is a huge theological impact because He is being prepared for the end of His life and so this is the first sign that illustrates right, the beginning of the end here. And again, he's not saying that neglecting the poor, like, hey, I don't care about them anymore. They serve their purpose. What he's saying is, though, that his death, his sacrifice, is one of the most important events that is going to happen in the world ever. And that's way more important than feeding the poor. Because the church has way more than 300 denarii now. 
We have way more than $20,000. You know, the churches, are able, if, we, if we've put our mind to it, we are able to feed the poor well beyond what they could have done. And, and, and that grew from, that was not even on the radar then. So verses 9 through 11, it's a little bit of a side though as we move through there. Right? We know that the crowd comes. And really what happens is we see this animosity between Jesus and the Pharisees. And now Lazarus is sort of an extra target. Because Lazarus got raised from the dead. We talked about it a couple weeks ago, chapter 11. So he's resurrected. People are causing, people are seeing Lazarus being raised from the dead. It says, okay, we need to fix this because he's a major point in the story. He's a major sign for Jesus. He's on his side, so we need to get rid of him so people stop believing in him. Even though people already know and saw that Lazarus was dead, so I'm not really sure how much good it would have done. Because they already knew it. The story had already been out there. So you just by killing him, it's not really going to do a whole lot other than anger a bunch of people and probably figure out, well, if the Pharisees wanted him dead, you know, maybe they're on to something here. Right? Because they're trying to keep it all quiet. And so John, we see that this large crowd is looking for Jesus. They show up at this house and then we move into chapter 12 here, or excuse me, verse 12, that the next day, the, the large crowd had come to the festival. They heard Jesus was coming as well. And so we, we see that what we call as Palm Sunday is coming in. Now Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, right? We have the Lamb's arrival coming into this next section, verses 12 through 19. And so this, his, his arrival is this weird mixture of fanfare and humbleness. We have all the people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. The crowd is making a big deal about the king, but Jesus is making a bigger deal about fulfilling prophecy. He's, he's making a big deal about what's going to happen and how it has to happen. Everybody else is just like, yay, Jesus is here, that's awesome, he's the Messiah. At least most of them think that. Probably everybody else maybe just got swept up in the excitement you know, with, the, with, the, with the, uh, the Passover and everything else. And so giving the preceding anointing Right. What's in a sense here is it's almost like a wake or it's a celebration of, of Jesus' pending death. And so the crowd is there, the disciples are there, and the Pharisees are there. And so John treats each of these groups as like a person. They're an individual. It's a these are kind of the individual characters in, the, in this section of the story. So the crowd recognizes Jesus as the king. They celebrate the, his arrival Right? And it could be misconstrued that the anointing was one of royal appointment, right? Just like when Samuel anointed David with oil, they said, oh, he, here it is. He's the king. He's eight years old. He's going to be the king. So you could look at it and go, oh, well, he's just anointing the king, but we know it's a burial anointment. It's a burial cleansing, in a sense. Right? They're shouting Hosanna, which is mean to take, you know, taken to mean salvation now. And so... One commentator says this is the crowd here obviously came out to meet a hero, shouting their hosannas and pro pronouncing a blessing as the one who comes in the name of the Lord, namely the King of Israel. And this statement is a composite acclamation drawn particularly from Psalms 118, verses 25 and 26, and Zechariah 9 9, when Zion and Jerusalem is called upon to rejoice at the coming of their king. Right? These are all prophecies. These are this is all this stuff going down as prophecy hundreds of years ago before this event. And so here we have Jesus riding on a donkey. And so the disciples were working, and they might have been a little bit on guard, you know, because they know that people were trying to kill Jesus. They know. So I think one role that they may have played, I think the chosen 
sort of has this portrayed a little more, especially with Peter, is they act a little bit more like, like bodyguards in a sense, where it's like, wait a minute, we need to make sure he doesn't die too early. You know, and that's good on them, right? We, we want to make sure they do that, but they're working with Jesus. They go through the gate with him, and they're probably like, what is all this stuff going on? Everybody's excited about this. And so we know that Jesus sent the disciples to go and get the donkey. And John just kind of passes over that. He just kind of uses the scripture and that's it. Right? It says in verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Now we know from the other gospels that the disciples went and got them. He told them where to go, who to talk to, where to bring it back to. Right? So John just kind of just straight up quotes scripture. He said, here you go. This is the prophecy. Right? It's an odd instruction for them. Go find the man. Tell him the Lord has need of your colt. They go find him. They never saw him. They ask about some livestock. Hey, you got a donkey that we could borrow or maybe have? Well, I don't know if it was ever returned. <clears throat> In a city where they're not from, they're mostly familiar with, with the city, so they probably knew their way around. But they're taken completely by surprise, and they didn't appreciate the historic moment until after the resurrection, as John tells us. Right, all this stuff's going on. And just like stuff, we don't know, we don't realize certain things, the significance of one thing that happened yesterday or last week or maybe a few months ago until whatever it is happens. And they go, oh, this caused this, and that's great. Right? But the more we do that, the more we understand that, the more links we can make and go, oh, wait a minute, this seemed different than before or other times, so that must mean something significant is going to happen. I'm not talking like, oh, I'm going to win the lottery type of thing, but we can learn to read God's signs that He gives for us in our lives because we can use the previous things to work out the future. And I'm not talking about trying to figure out the date for the end of the world either, just, just so we know. Um, but we can understand the events that are and are not maybe the end times things as well. Because you see, the humbleness comes in where a hero would usually ride in on a horse or a chariot, like a big war horse. And he would put the, he would be above the crowd. Right? Just like I'm up on the pulpit, so everybody can see me. It would be like Jesus is sitting down down here in a chair talking. It's like, oh that's that's God. He's just sitting on the chair talking. Right? It's like us. So you can see that we're elevated. Not because I'm, I deserve it, but so you people can see us, right? That's, that's the whole point of a stage. It's the same thing. But instead, Jesus just shows up on a donkey. And not even just a full-grown donkey. He shows up on a colt. A young donkey. So it's shorter. It's kind of probably smaller than a normal-sized donkey. So here it is. You probably had to really strain if you've ever been to a parade, right? If you can't, you get one or two rows back, you can't see a whole lot. You know, unless... You have a chair or a ladder or something and you can get in there and see. That's why some people used to you know, get there super early. They wanted to see it. So the crowd continues to sing Jesus' praises and talk about how he resurrected Lazarus. And so this third person or group, the Pharisees, were standing around watching and listening. They're probably off to the side. I can kind of imagine their little group. They're like their little, little, their little, uh, their little club. Like, oh, blah, blah, blah. these people, what are they doing? You know, and, and, and it says, this is, this is also why the crowd met him, because they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you've accomplished nothing. Right? So they're kind of pointing at each other. Like, whoever it was, you screwed up. You didn't kill him. You didn't do your job. Now there's more people who are following him than us. Right? And this 
this upsets him. He says, look, the world has gone after him. And so, not everybody's going to like everybody, right? The people are not, every, not always going to like everybody else. Jesus was getting a lot of attention, and the Pharisees thought this was a bad thing. He was leading, they thought he was leading people astray, and so their efforts, though, to stop everything was ineffective. They could kill Lazarus in time, and the fact that he was still alive made it difficult to dissuade people from believing in Jesus' power. And so again, like I said, I'm not sure that it would have helped anyway. Because he'd already been resurrected. So there's really no point. The damage is already done. The story's already been told. But we see the world has gone after him is what they say. And so the world here in the sense is the world is the people of the world. And they know they don't mean like every single person, right? But they're, they're talking about this saying, look, they're losing control of the people. And so this idea of the world or the cosmos and the world that John, he's not saying as some Christian might have come to think in a negative term, right? But it's, but it's also not a geographical or territorial designation. Right? It doesn't just mean like one set, but it's, it's like everybody. And so this, Jesus is the light of the world of the people, and his coming into the world to take away the sins of the world, and the sin, take away the sin of the people of the world. Right? But we also know because of the hard hearts and rejection that the coming of Jesus also meant the judgment of the world. Right? We know that these things are going to happen. So all these people that, that don't believe, you know, they're just not going to hear it. So it's, they're going to be judged. It's just the way it is. And so the crowd and the disciples didn't know everything exactly that, that their salvation, what they're asking for, or how close they were to everything happening. Right? They don't understand this stuff. They don't get it a, a completely. But the Pharisees thought that the worst thing in the world was happening. Like, we're not going to have anybody coming to church tomorrow. They're all going to be at Jesus' church, not ours. Oh, it's terrible. You know, because... But they were hard-hearted because they didn't recognize who the actual lamb was, even though John the Baptist had told them. Other people told him he had done signs to you know, restore sight to the blind, raise the dead, all these other things. He had done these signs that fulfilled these prophecies, saying he's the Messiah. But they were still concerned that he was usurping their power. But you see, Jesus knew exactly what was going on. He knew everything. He is aware of everything because he's the Lamb of God. He's God the Son. He knows exactly what the plans are. You know, him and God, I'm sure, had long conversations about all this stuff before everything happened. Here's how it's going to go down. Right? So verses 20 through 43, which is like this large chunk, the largest chunk that we're going to kind of cover, but we'll kind of go through it. I don't want to say fast, but we're going to go through the highlight parts of this. And so John gives us this concept of the world, and he includes this new group, starting in verse 20. He says, now some Greeks were among those, right? So now we don't have just the Jews, but we have the Greeks, so that kind of means everybody else. Yeah, that's kind of a general term for like the pagans or the Greeks. Whoever's not Jewish show up into the world to worship as well. And so we see that Jesus' message has gone across the borders of Israel. It wasn't just confined to the promised land. It, was, it started to go out past Israel. It started to go out to everybody else into the wider world. And so verse 23, if you drop down to there, because that's the more important part, Jesus replies to them, to the groups. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. 
But if it dies, and it, produ it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Right? What does he say? My time has come. It's time for me to die. It's a time of planting. Right? So the seed, when you stick it in there, eventually the seed disappears. The seed just stops being a seed, and it turns into a plant. The seed technically dies in order to turn into the wheat plant, the corn plant, the tree, whatever it is. And these plants and trees produce things that we can eat. They're useful. And, it's, and those fruits, plant them in the ground, they produce more trees, right? So it's a multiplication factor. Jesus knows what he is about. He's very confident about this. And he's telling them what we need to be about. He's telling us what we need to be about as well. Jesus is all about his father's business and we should be about his, his, his business. So the one who loses his life, or the one who loves his life will lose it. But the one who hates his life in this world, right, this is important, in this world will keep it for eternal life. And so the Jews loved absolute contrast in their arguments, and so that's why it seems like this makes a little, doesn't make a lot of sense to us sometimes. If I love it, I, I'm going to lose it. If I hate it, I'm going to keep it. Like, I don't, if I hate it, I want to keep it, right? Right, because he's talking about your life in this world, the things that you love in this world, you don't want to keep. You want to keep the things of God's world, right, the heavenly world. Because we're talking about things that are temporary, right? Our life, if we love this temporary life, we will not enjoy the things that are permanent. I'm not saying we can't enjoy things that are here. We can't have nice things or whatever it is. I don't want to make sure, make sure we're not saying that. But what we're looking at is we need to focus on God. Focus on what He's given us and why He's given it to us. And so a lot of these things, it may sound counterintuitive. So if you've grown up learning how to drive in the winter, in the snow or things like that, they tell you if you're skidding on the ice, you're supposed to turn into the direction of the skid. Which doesn't make sense, right? Like, I don't want to go that way, I want to go that way. Right? And now I'll get to that in a second, but you can just leave it there. Because what it is, is if the back end slides to the left, you should steer to the left to catch that slide so you would straighten your car up. Just like race cars, right? Turn left to go, turn right to go left, or turn left to go right. So if you see them turning, they, you see they're. Their wheels are usually turned kind of this way, right? Which looks weird, but their car's going the way it's supposed to be going. Because that's how physics works with the cars and the dirt and everything else. So what seems odd to us, what seems like it doesn't make sense, when you do it, it actually makes sense. Even though it scares you out of the bejesus out of you the first time you slide across an ice field, and you're like, I don't know, I'm going to trash. Right? You turn it the other way and whoop. Okay, great. I'm not in the ditch. Perfect. So Jesus has to lose his life in order for you to have a new one. Jesus has to die. Someone has to pay and die for the sins of the world that entered into the world through Adam and Eve. And instead of God making us pay for it, because we don't have enough money to pay for that, he pays for it. Right? He keeps our end of the covenant and his end of the covenant. Because, you see, if God were only concerned with justice... Right, the law, we would pay for our own debt. When we die, we have to take whatever money we can carry into the afterlife and say, all right, God, I hope this is enough. And he's going to say, nope, goodbye. Right, you're going down, the, down, down on the down elevator. But God is merciful. 
God has mercy on us, and He pays for His people's transgressions with His own blood. Because that's the merciful thing. That is what He does. That is the mercy and grace that He shows us. And that is the good news. We don't have to hope we have enough money with us. And you know, a lot of, a lot of religions think it's good deeds. Right? That's our payment. So we have more good deeds than bad deeds. We get in. It doesn't matter. Because if anyone serves me, he should follow me. So we should be doing that automatically. We should be working because of our faith. We should be doing good things and living Christ-like because we want to be like Christ. We don't want to just get all the benefits and none of the, none of the work. Like that's kind of what Judas was wanting to do. Right? He wanted to sell the money and steal it. Or sell the perfume and steal the money. You can't serve God from afar. You have to be right there with Him in your life. It can't be just like, hey Jesus, I'm on call. Call me when you need me and I'll just come in maybe if I'm available. Right? Like right now, I, work, I get to work from home off and on so I can tell, hey, I'm going to work from home today. That's cool because I'm still working. Versus like, you need to come into the office. Right? So if they ask me to go in, I go in. No problem. It's the same thing. And so during this thing, though, during this conversation, though, this is an important part, that John 12, 30 and 33, it says, Jesus responded, this, came, this voice came not for me, but for you. So we hear this voice all of a sudden, and people said it sounded like thunder. And that's God talking to the people. They heard whatever they heard, said, oh, that's God talking about this it says, now is the judgment of the world, this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, I am, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. So Jesus tells us the good news. The ruler of this world, i.e. Satan, he is going to be cast out. Right? We see this in Revelation. We know he gets thrown into the lake of fire everything else. You know, a couple times, whatever is the fight. Satan loses. That's the good news. He will be defeated. But in order for that to happen, again, this seems counterintuitive, Jesus has to die. He has to be crucified or lifted up on the cross. And we see, when it happens, we see the people are sniggering and talking, like, ha we won. But then three days later, we know he's resurrected. The grave couldn't hold him because he was resurrected. God resurrected him, brought him back to life. And so even Lazarus being resurrected is, is a bit of a foreshadow of what is going to happen with Jesus. But of course, people don't believe it, even though Jesus is explaining these prophecies through Isaiah. He's like, look, this is me. This is going on right now. But you guys aren't hearing it, so you're just going to have to, you're going to losing. Because all these things were fulfilled in this week that's going to go happen, this is going to go on. And they're fulfilled because this is the Lamb's assignment. So this is the last section of, the, of this, of this uh, chapter. And so this is a little bit familiar, like it's verses 23 through 26. And they're very similar, but now Jesus is putting it more on the people. He's putting it back and he's explaining the gospel message to the crowd. If you believe in Jesus, God the Son, you believe in God the Father, is what he's saying. They are one and the same, right? When you look at me, he's telling them, you see him. And so Jesus comes as a light bringer, and we can now see in and through the darkness, right? So anybody who's holding the flashlight, we see this, because now we see what it is. Our sins have been illuminated. We now know the difference between good and bad, right and wrong. We can't be ignorant of what goes on around us anymore. Our eyes have been opened. 
And so the light enables us to see our path and keeps us from stumbling now. And that's the important part, right? That is what Jesus has done. The Holy, Jesus and the Holy Spirit have come to show us what was wrong, show us where we went wrong, and show us what we needed, and we need a Savior. Because again, we can't pay for our sins. Jesus is the only one that can do that. And there were people in the crowd that John writes about that didn't believe what Jesus said. They're like, Psh. right? The Pharisees didn't believe him. And they're going to be judged. Right? They're going to be judged at the end times, the last day, they're going to be judged. Because what Jesus wants everybody to know, though, is that he is on a rescue mission. He came to save the lost. He came to save people. That's good. He, didn't just con he didn't come to condemn. He came to save. And so verse 21, says, this commentator says, But even though Jesus came to save the world, rejecting him, namely the failure to believe and receive him as words, could imply nothing other than judgment, right? It's either a one or a zero. You either say yes or no. That is the only decision that matters in your entire life, really. Because that decision determines where your eternal outcome will be. Now, I'm not saying there's, there's other important decisions that you make, but... That is the one. And these statements are both present and future, right? People like Stephen and Peter, they're going to die because they believe in Jesus and they will have eternal life. The heavens opened up in front of Stephen be right before he died as he was being stoned by the non-believers. Then Paul was in the crowd or Paul was kind of outside on the periphery of that crowd watching, holding people's coats. He didn't believe at that time and later on the road to Damascus, <laughs> Jesus interrupted his life. Paul saw the light, literally and figuratively, and he got saved, we'll call it, as we call it. Those that do not believe him, believe in him, in Jesus, may live longer. Right? Those other people outlived Stephen, but they, are not having, they don't have an eternal life in heaven. And they're going to face judgment on the last day. And so, excuse me, this is God's message. The last day is foretold all through the Old Testament, through the Jewish Scriptures. So this isn't something that the New Testament writers just tacked on. This stuff already existed 400 years before this stuff, almost 500 years by the time John's written, by the time this stuff is put down, all the Old Testament Scripture has been written for at least 500 years. Half, half a millennia. So this stuff's already here. So we go to Malachi 3.7. It says, Since the days of your ancestors you have turned away from my statutes, you have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Right? And Malachi is the last Old Testament book in the Protestant Bible, right before Matthew. And Malachi 4, 1 through 3 says, For look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches. But for you who fear my name, the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. You will trample the wicked... For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I am preparing, says the Lord of armies. These are the words of God to the prophet 500 years before all this stuff happens almost. So you have the same idea of what Jesus is saying here in the last part of chapter 12. There's going to be a day of judgment. Where are you going to? What line are you going to be in? The yes line, I agree, I accept, 
I fear your name. So you get to go jump around like a happy calf. You know, like a newborn calf, just learn how to walk. Or are you going to be burned up like stubble? And that is the harsh reality, but that is the, they're the words of the Lord. And again, it's consistent all the way through. It's not just Jesus made this up all of a sudden. The Jews knew these scriptures. They were aware of the day of the Lord. They knew all this stuff. We, as, as Westerners, as 21st century people, you know, it may be a little bit harder for us, but we've, if you've grown up in the church, you've heard these things. But again, it's not new. It's not a new thing. And so to quote Malachi again from Malachi 3.16, it says, God has opened the floodgates of heaven's storehouses and poured out a blessing on His people. And so that blessing is Jesus. When He opened the storehouse, really what it is, that's Him partially having Jesus come down. That is His love being poured out into the world. That we see you know, on Good Friday that we think is a bad thing, but we know it's a good catastrophe. It's a good thing that happens even though it's death is a bad thing. So the question is, how do you respond to his sacrifice? And so wrapping it up, I know this a lot, but I want to make sure we understand this. So Jesus in chapter 12, he is acting in all three of his roles. First, he is the priest and he is being prepared for the sacrifice. Usually the priest prepares, his, the, prepares the sacrifice, but he is both prepared himself and he is also being prepared for the sacrifice. Second, he is the king. He comes into the city taking up the line of David and returning to his earthly throne. And thirdly, he is the prophet explaining what has to happen for the world to be repaired and for him to fulfill his mission. Right. So those three offices that Jesus fulfills, that's, those are his main things that he does. I know that's super theological kind of, but those are, what, those are the important parts. And so John is preparing us preparing the audience for this last week of Jesus' life. And we know that's important because this is the whole point of the story. Jesus didn't come down to feed the poor and heal the sick and everything else. He does that in a, because it helps and he's being graceful and he's fulfilling prophecy. But he's also doing it as signs to point to himself as the Messiah. So the decision is, and I know we're Christians here, but, but I want to make sure that, you know, it's important that we hear this over and over and we remember who Jesus is and what He's done for us. Right? Just like we did the Lord's Supper, we remember it's all about remembrance. That's the important part of it. That we remember because why? Because we can tell others. We can tell others, we can point to our own lives and say, this is what happened to me. My life has been changed because of the Lord. When I, when I gave my life and my control over to Jesus. Because here's the thing, I heard this this week. Jesus is the King, Period. You don't let Jesus take over. You just get out of the way. Right? It's not like, hey, Jesus, come on and I'm tired of doing this now. No, you're like, okay, I'm messing it up. I need you to come into my life. I need you to do these things. And so that's why this, this, this chapter is important because it's, it's sort of a, a ramping up for all this stuff. So as we sing our last few songs this week, right? Just remember that, again, there's a lot more theology than sort of application. It's kind of high level, but the application part is what you do with who Jesus is. What do you do with that information of your life?